Es spricht der Führer. Als unsere Partei gerade sieben Mann hoch war, sprach sie schon zwei Grundsätze aus. Erstens, sie wollte eine wahrhaftige Weltanschauungspartei sein. Zweitens, sie wollte daher kompromisslos die einzige Macht und alleinige Macht in Deutschland. Hello, and welcome to the Third Reich History Podcast. My name is Ryan Stackhouse, and we will presently be joined by Chris Osmar. Once again, we're historians of the Third Reich who specialize in Hitler's secret state police, the Gestapo, or the political police in the Nazi regime. Uh, I look at the way that the Gestapo policed Germans, while Chris looks at the way the Gestapo controlled foreign labor who were used as slaves in Nazi Germany. The first project that we're tackling with the podcast is a literature review of the so-called end phase of the Third Reich, the last 10 months from the assassination attempt against Hitler on 20 July until the final collapse, collapse, uh, collapse, collapse of the Nazi regime in May 1945. Much less is known about the end phase compared to other periods of the Third Reich, and Chris and I have developed some of our own ideas. We're using the podcast to bounce around as we review recent literature on the subject. This week, we'll be reviewing a chapter out of Gabriele Lofty's Katze der Gestapo, Arbeitserziehungslager im Dritten Reich, which translates as KZ of the Gestapo, or Concentration Camps of the Gestapo, Work Education Camps in the Third Reich. Unfortunately, I know much less about Lofty compared to some of the other historians we've been discussing in the series so far, but I do know that this book is widely regarded as having brought attention to the system of work education camps in Germany that had been largely overlooked up to that point. And in that sense, it's definitely a landmark. Today, we're only going to be looking at the last chapter, which covers the Arbeitserziehungslager, or the AELs, in the end phase of the war. But I thought before we began, it might be useful to have a little bit more background on the larger camp system in Germany, as well as the AELs specifically. So, what is a concentration camp? How is that different from a death camp? And how does a work education camp differ from both of them? It's always interesting to talk about the concentration camp system because it changes so much over time. The first thing to know is that there is a sharp divide between the concentration camps, which are within Germany, and the labor or death camps that exist in the East, where Jews are sent and the Holocaust occurs. So in the more extreme example, Auschwitz or Treblinka, which we usually associate with concentration camps, those are actually the death camps that are part of the Holocaust and exist as a sort of separate world from the concentration camps that are inside of Germany. The concentration camp system without Germany goes through its own set of transformations from 1933 onward. In the first phase, we have what are known as wild concentration camps, and this happens in 1933, almost immediately after the Nazi party comes into power. The, the SA, the Sturmabteilung, the stormtroopers, or the brown shirts, right, the street fighting paramilitary wing of the party, sets up 
places where they can hold communists, uh, the fear of the Nazis being that there's going to be some type of uprising or counter-revolution by the Communist Party in Germany. So they start by locking people up in improvised prisons where much abuse occurs, people begin being beaten to death, and there are sometimes criminal investigations that are associated with this, like somebody's handing out communist flyers or something like this, you haul them in, the SA auxiliaries will beat them around a bit while the police ask them questions, and you begin to have these scandals where people are dying or lawyers begin to be arrested because they're hired by these people's families to say, you can't, you can't do this, there's no law for this, or there needs to be some sort of due process. And there, there begins to be a public pushback of, of some type against the atrocities that are happening in these wild concentration camps. And at the same time, there are also state-sanctioned concentration camps. The, the wider history that is associated with this is that Himmler sets up Dachau in Bavaria, where he has the so-called Bavarian model of using his men in the SS as guards. And he says, because they're in the SS, I'm both the police commissioner and the head of the SS. And so only I can, not only are our SS guys way more professional than these SA yahoos, right? The SA was primarily working class, while the SS tended to be more middle-class elite membership. Not only are, are my guys not going to do those types of things. They're more disciplined, they're more respectable. But uh, because I am both the police commissioner and the head of the SS, I can discipline my guards if they do something wrong. So this becomes a model and he goes out networking across the German states and gradually begins to gather the, the various strands of political police in the country into his hands. Now, just to be clear here, this is a total fabrication. The SS are just as bad, if not worse, than the SA. Himmler is playing on class prejudices and the desire for order, but the the nature of the concentration camps and what they became comes back to the SS system that was set up at Dachau underneath ICA, with all of the defined disciplinary measures and punishments that were supposed to prevent these abuses that in fact ended up becoming the source of them moving forward. So that that is a separate thread that is occurring with the development of the concentration camp system. But as more respectable people like civil servants who become critical of this protracted state of emergency or lawyers who are called into ask what's going on and when they can expect these people to be released, begin to get caught up and taken into the concentration camps during this wild phase, you get a pushback from the public. Now, I should also point out that at this time, the political opponents who are being kept in the concentration camps are experiencing relatively short periods of detention with a high rate of turnover. So by summer 1933, you have approximately 20,000 people in the camps at any given time, but they're only being detained for approximately three months at any, at any given stint or stretch. So there's a large turnover, and you're actually talking about close to 100,000 people that are being processed through the camps over the, this first year of their existence. In response, over 1934, the Ministry of the Interior begins to crack down, and this moves us into the second phase of the concentration camps. They begin to say things like, oh, well, 
we need to have regulations, we need to have this centrally controlled, this can't just be allowed to be run by anybody who happens to be a member of the party, right? This needs to have a system, it needs to be in the hands of the state, it needs to be controlled by the police, there needs to be some type of, uh, you know, control and oversight of this system. At the same time, they begin to sell the concentration camp system to the public as a way to reform degenerate political opponents or work-shy individuals through the merits of hard labor. So send in a communist who has lost touch with German values and is threatening to tear down the state and you just you know make him bust rocks for a while and then he comes out a good German citizen who through the merits of hard labor has been reformed. So it's very Victorian or Wilhelmite in, in a way. The, the ideas that are associated with this period is kind of reformed through labor. And there's all sorts of articles in newspapers about the, the great economic benefits of having prison labor and that this is going to be great for the country. At the same time, the number of concentration camps and the number of prisoners being held in concentration camps is steadily decreasing. So people are being released. Like I said, it's still generally a short turnover rate, but as as people begin to understand what the consequences are for continuing communist activity, organized resistance begins to die out and the numbers of people being kept in concentration camps continues to decrease steadily. The numbers here are actually quite amazing. You go from nearly 100,000 people who are being arrested in March 1933 during the height of the wild phase to around 26,000 by summer 1933 as the system becomes more regulated and the state begins to take more control. And then as it begins to be phased out over 1934 under the new regulations, you reach the point where it almost disappears completely. You, you are down to 4,000 prisoners. Yeah, that's right. 4,000 prisoners by summer 1935. So the next phase begins in 1936. And Himmler begins arguing earlier in 1935, we still need these camps. And the numbers begin to rise again, but the nature of the prisoners, like the camp populations, the people who are being detained in concentration camps, and the reasons that the public is being given for why they're being kept there and what the purpose of the camps are changes fundamentally from 1936 onward. So like I said before, from 1933 to 1936, we have this idea that the camps are reforming dangerous political opponents through hard labor and turning them back into good Germans. But from 1936 onward, you begin to deal primarily with social outsiders rather than political opponents. And once you begin to deal with social outsiders, you see a shift in the camp populations. You have more uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, homosexuals, criminals like repeat offenders or so-called asocials, people who are alcoholics or habitually, habitually petty criminals, things like this. So as the population camp change or po camp population changes, you also get a change in the, the message that is being sent to the public about why they're being kept there. It's no longer about reform. It's about a place where you can send incorrigible offenders, 
people who are lost to the so-called community of the people and cannot be reformed and must be kept somewhere where they can't trouble good Germans. So the number of political opponents drops who are being kept detained in concentration camps, but the camp numbers rise again and begin to hold different groups. Now, when I say a rise in prisoners, it's actually quite remarkable. You go from around 4,000 prisoners in summer of 1935, this would be right before the camps are just about to disappear, and then that skyrockets to nearly 60,000 by the end of 1938. Now, that number is associated in part with the Kristallnacht pogrom, but the actual stable numbers are close to around 20,000, so you're back to the levels that the camps were in the first years of their existence. The third phase of the camps begins with the Second World War in September of 1939. This is when we begin to see major rises in mortality in the camps. These deaths are still related to issues with food and disease. We haven't moved into the period where we're talking about actual death camps yet, but the rate of deaths is rising from single digits into quite staggering double digits, like 26, 36 percent. And all of this is directly connected to the war and the issues with, with rationing and lack of supplies. And so as, as the war progresses, hygiene declines and you start to get issues with disease and malnutrition. There is once again a rise in the number of political prisoners who are kept in concentration camps after 1939 as well. Right before the war begins, the Gestapo goes out and rounds up all of the people that they have on lists as known communists and sends them to a concentration camp. If you are caught for a communist activity after 1939, you're much more likely to be sent to a concentration camp indefinitely, and so you, you begin to see more political prisoners again, and more political prisoners who are being kept there bis auf weiteres, until further notice. A directive actually goes out that particularly active communists or particularly dangerous communists, people who are somehow associated with a preparation for high treason case or conspiracy to commit high treason case, should not be released for the duration of the war. Now, some prisoners still go in and come out on a sort of three to six month period, but you see an increasing number of indefinite detentions. I should also point out here the reason why the concentration camps were so scary is because you never knew, as a detainee, how long you were going to be kept there. That was secret, it was only known to the Gestapo, and it was kept from your family or anybody in the outside world. So you essentially went into the camp system, and you could be there forever so far as you knew. 1940 to 1941 is when you really begin to see the concentration camp system divide into the three parts that we will be talking about one of today, the, the work education camps. So the death camps begin to be established in 1941 as the persecution of the Jews intensifies and you move into the actual active phase of the Holocaust. That is something that we will discuss in another podcast. The work education camps are established in 1940 as a way of disciplining foreign labor. After the war began, the German economy increasingly relied on foreign labor. Now, this is Chris's specialty, so we'll leave this up to him to discuss. But what you need to know before we begin is that these AELs, the work education camps, 
or establishes a way of disciplining foreign labor who are in, in according to the Nazis, uh, in breach of contract is the term that they use. The AELs are actually established usually under a contract with a major, say, arms manufacturer or some other type of industrial firm that needs a lot of labor, saying that you you will house and pay for the the oversight of these workers and then their labor will be sold to you by the Gestapo. And so any any foreign workers who are found to be in violation of their contract by, say, being out after dark or refusing to wear their their little patch that identifies what country they're from or being insolent to a German uh, will be sent to one of these work education camps where they will have very hard conditions. And in theory, this runs for a maximum of eight weeks. This is a limited sentence that oftentimes runs over. And then afterward, the workers will be returned to their normal work camps where they have comparatively better conditions. As we've said in earlier podcasts, there are nearly 8 million foreign workers on German soil at this point. So a tool to keep them in line, like the AEL, is considered extremely important. Without further ado, our discussion of Gabriela Lofty's Katze der Gestapo. So, Gabriela Lofty's Katze der Gestapo, specifically in the end phase. What what do you have to say? You tell me that you have many opinions about this one. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, Lofty is is dealing with this question of radicalization as well that we've already talked about. So, I think that that might be something that's that's worth exploring. Uh, Lofty, um, much like McConnell, is concerned with how like decentralization of the police radicalize the police. And uh, she is suggesting that as the Gestapo leaders had more authority on the ground, they increasingly exercised that authority in violent ways. So she embraces this radicalization idea. But there's also this issue of, of uh, many people being released, which I know is something that you're very interested in oh, and who exactly say. those people were. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's, what what is she saying to begin with, I suppose? What 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 are her points? What changes about the work education camps in the final phase of the war? Well, maybe we should talk a bit about what the function of the work education camps were early in the war uh, so that we can appreciate the change that took place. So, Lafi talks a lot about Hunswinkel. So I, I think that that is a good example of the way an AEL or work education camp was supposed to function. In fact, uh, my understanding is that it was the first work education camp that was called a work education camp before, you know, you would have places where Germans who were work shy uh, would be compelled to conduct labor, but they didn't call them work education camps. Just uh, called them it concentration camps for a while. Well, well, the Hans, Hanswinkel is is a good example of a place where Germans were compelled to work before it was a work education camp. Uh, it was people from the Reichsarbeitsdienst, the this like a labor draft, effectively, uh, mm -hmm. were living in this camp that was operated 
for the benefit of a firm called Hawk Teeth. And they were building a dam on the Verse River. And what, when, when the Gestapo started thinking about how are we going to deal with foreigners in particular, they're looking for a solution that's going to meet security concerns, discipline concerns, and also benefit the companies that are employing people who maybe don't want to be employed there. So uh, they, they look to Hawk Thief. It's got a job to be done. You need to build this dam. Uh, it has the facilities. There are barracks. And importantly, there's two different barracks. So if you were to start bringing foreigners in there, you can put the Germans in one, and you can put the foreigners in another. So the Dusseldorf Gestapo uh, took this over and turned it into a work education camp. The, the logic behind the work education camp is that it could be harsh, because the point is you want to punish people that are not living up to expectations. Um, people who have escaped or if they're, they're not working hard enough uh, or have you know, transgressed against work discipline in one way or another. But uh, before the solution had often been send this uh, type of reluctant worker to the concentration camps. The problem though is that they never come back, rarely come back, and the firms are going to lose out on a worker in, in that uh, situation. So they want a way to discipline harshly but still get the get the worker to come back. So the, the work education camps are set up to be, the lived experience within one is going to be a lot like the concentration camps. Not much food, uh, hard work, pretty brutal treatment. But at the end, the worker's gonna go back to their previous workplace. And this has another important and interesting effect that everyone who worked with that person that's just been sent to a work education camp is gonna have an idea of what happened. And when they come back, they're going to see the condition of this person when they when they arrive back at the workplace, Hollow and it's going to have a deterrent effect. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So the education component of the work education camp, which is not cynical, the Gestapo and the firms that are concerned really do see this as a wonderful way to educate workers. Uh, but the the student is not just the person sent to the work education camp; it's also the rest of the workforce that sees what can happen. Reform the delinquent and display the consequences. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and Hans Winkle was going to serve this purpose first. Uh, and it would be kind of a, a model for uh, future work education camps uh, going forward. Uh, an important difference between the AEL and the concentration camps also were who was in charge. That was going to be the Gestapo who were running the camps providing the guards, uh, deciding who was going to be sent there. Uh, I mean, a, a company could report a worker to the Gestapo, but it's ultimately the Gestapo that makes the decision about what's going to happen to them. Uh, from, from Hans Winkle, more and more of these uh, work education camps open up, and then they, they start running into their own uh, little problems. Uh, at Hans Winkle, there, there was an, an epidemic of, I think it was typhus, that, that broke out, uh, which create a situation where no work was getting done, uh, for one. So that kind of upset hawk teeth. Uh, and it also meant that you couldn't send more prisoners there without broadening the epidemic. And, and this drives the creation of, of new camps as well. I think the contractual so, nature of the relationship between, sorry. Do you no, no, go on. 
uh, the contractual nature of the relationship between the the firms who are paying for the AEL and paying for the labor and the food should be highlighted. This is like this is a corporate contract between mm-hmm. the Gestapo and a German firm, right? So if you're not getting any work done, it's not strictly a punishment thing. Like this is supposed to be an economically viable model. Absolutely. And not only are these businesses involved in, in funding the work education camps, as the war progresses, some of them start opening up their own where they will have private personnel acting as the guards. The Gestapo will inspect the camps. The Gestapo still makes the big decisions about uh, how they're going to function and who's going to go there. But uh, in some of the, the smaller camps, they're often right on company property. It is these firms that are running the show. Uh, so it's also a a place where industry and the terror apparatus are very much cooperating and coming together. Hmm. So what changes? The, the big change comes as the allies approach. And the Gestapo starts using the AEL as expanded police prisons. Right. Not just as a place to put contract breaking workers or Arbeits Bummelai uh, <laughs> uh, workers that are being basically are, are, slacking. Are slacking. That's the word I'm looking for. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, so it's not just this population that's there anymore. And it's not about disciplining and educating workers and it's It's also like the nature of the people the nature of the punishment changes in that a concentration camp from the beginning of the war onward is much more likely to be indefinite and whereas the the ael is supposed to in theory and and more often in practice up to this point be restricted to a three-week punishment is it not like 21 days or something or is I think it eight 56 weeks? days 56 was the, weeks. the typical punishment. Yeah. Or 56 days. But uh, it was it was rarely weeks. longer than that, but it was often shorter than that. Right. And but it, compared to the concentration camp after 1939 where you're dealing with generally a 6-month minimum, oftentimes years if ever released. Uh Right. Very different. That's that's another big change that you have moving into this final period. Yeah. Yeah, just the whole premise on which the work education camps were built starts to fall away. The, the educational character, the, the short-term confinement character. Uh, although there are still many people that are released from, from the AEL right up to the end uh, through the evacuations and whatnot. So you've done more work on this, but the sense that I got from Lofty was that the Gestapo basically begins to use them as a dumping ground. Yeah, because they don't have space in the prisons anymore. So this is a convenient spot for them to dump all of the extra people that have been swept up in the expanding terror. Uh, You mentioned before the Erweitete Polizeigefängnis, the expanded police prison. Yeah. Uh, this is basically just a this is basically just an AEL by another name and like well without without the pretext to educating uh, right it, as i understand it a expanded police prison is its purpose is purely as a dumping ground it's just more space to 
put Germans and foreigners who have transgressed against the regime in one way or another. Hmm. But uh, one thing that Latfi does a good job of is explaining where these extra people are coming from through uh, action Gewitter. Yes. Yes. Uh, this was a move in mid to late August. I think it was the 22nd of August. Uh, the 18th? Somewhere 18th. So mid to late August. Yeah. <laughs> Around there. Yeah. Uh, it, it's an effort to uh, sweep up all of the Germans who had previously been imprisoned for one reason or another or who had been prominent figures in some of the other parties well, in prominent, Germany. Prominent here covers any anybody who served in public office down to the down to like mayors, I believe. Like it, it, you're talking mm -hmm. about like not just the land talk, but the uh, like Christ administration and anybody who had served in public office who had come from yeah, the Communist I, Party, the Socialist Party, or the Catholic Center Party, the Demo like the old Democratic Centrist Party. They were all swept up in this and just picked up whole scale. Yeah, Conrad Adenauer is the the most high profile example. This is the first post war first post war president of Western Germany, or first war chancellor. Sorry, the right, uh, and he had been the mayor of Cologne, so he wasn't in the Reichstag. I, he wasn't at the the pinnacle of the party, but uh, he was all the same uh, put into. Oh, I which camp he wound up in? Okay, he ended okay, up so in, he ended prison. up in Brauweiler because I read his interrogation. <laughs> I have I have his uh, statement to the the British War Crimes Commission about the executions in Ehrenfeld. He witnessed that, or I guess he would have seen the goings on in Brauweiler as as he was in Brauweiler during that. Yeah. yeah, and these these are the. The executions that we we previously talked about when we were talking about uh, Rusinek, yep. the Ehrenfeld gang, uh, and the Eastern workers in Cologne who were kind of living underground outside of the law and carrying on capers and whatnot. <laughs> so we have Conrad Adenauer and everybody yes. else, and all the, the Gewitter Germans. Yes, and the the other big group that's getting targeted in. The late summer and into the fall are the so-called half Jews and Jews in mixed marriages. So Germans and well Aryans, uh, as the Nazi Pirates ideology the would cast them. Yes, uh, and uh, Jews of various grades. The the Nuremberg laws had set up a categorization schema for Jews. Uh, based on how many Jewish grandparents that you had, you know, the idea being that uh, Jewishness was a race rather than a religion. Although, I mean, ultimately it was predicated on religion because they're looking at the confession of grandparents, what, how they practiced. Uh, but uh, anyone who had one or two Jewish grandparents was a Mischlinga, uh, a a mixed uh, race. Jew of the first grade, I believe it was. In any case, they had been exempted from deportation up to this point, as had uh, Jews, regardless of the number of Jewish grandparents that they had, who were in mixed marriages, 
Uh, at this at this stage of the war, as the Allies are approaching, they start to get swept up as well, and they wind up in the police prisons, in the expanded police prisons, and in the AEL. And Latfi mentions. Hold on, I want to find this part of my notes that there was an order, supposedly, uh, at, at a post-war trial. Somebody claimed that there was an order. Oh, I want to see who gave the order. It was Gutenberger, so the higher SS police leader for the West, to liquidate the half-Jews and Jews in mixed marriages, but that it was not carried out. That instead, the Jewish components of mixed marriage families were taken to Theresienstadt, this kind of uh, transfer camp, whereas the the families of them were sent to work off work uh, for organization Toad, this uh, kind of paramilitary construction force. Operated on military installations and in areas near the front. Precisely. Uh, so I think this is this is interesting uh, because at least if we can believe, well, it looks like it was uh, Abath and Noska who said this after the war that Gutenberger had given this order. Uh, well, Noska got drummed out because of it, or I, like that's why Henschke got brought in was because of the dispute with Gutenberger that went back all the way back up to Himmler. Tell, tell me about that. I haven't, I haven't heard anything about this. Well, um, well, I'd have to reread the the post-war interrogations, but there was some some strategic feet dragging on the orders, and mm-hmm. uh, like you can't issue this order. I have to contact Himmler about this, and I'm not acting on this without orders from above. Like that sort of that sort of situation, and uh, Henschke, the the head of station for the Dusseldorf regional Gestapo office was replaced and Hans Henschke was brought in uh, on the basis of this. Um, let's the not timing call it lines up. Uh, foot, foot dragging and the, the context of this, this order, I think is important too, because uh, Gutenberg is giving it during the evacuations of the left bank of the Rhine. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, and we've talked about this before. Uh, he'd also given other, uh, guidelines for executions, uh, which included shooting Germans who approached the front. Mm-hmm. And it looks like that also was not followed and he had to reiterate it. Uh, so, and then back uh, down. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this is another arena, the, the approach to half Jews and Jews and mixed marriages where a Gutenberger seems to have been more radical than the people around him. And they did not want to acquiesce to his demands without encouragement from above. Going forward, it seems like that that hesitancy to obey regional authority starts to wane. Uh, we have still a huge population of foreign workers who are now beginning to be sent to the AELs because they are being, you know, caught trying to move across. The, into the evacuated area towards the Allies or are being recaptured following bombing raids or are delinquent in the ruins of Cologne, as we discussed with Rusenik. And then we have the, the half-Jews and mixed marriages who are 
in the AELs. I also thought it was interesting that she noted increasingly the Gestapo started to dump a bunch of people for defeatism and uh, other mm. sort of minor minor opinion related offenses there. Yeah. I wish um, she had said more about that or had some type <laughs> of register where you could kind of, I, from her notes, could you tell, is there a prison register somewhere that tells you who was transferred and why? I, I didn't see it. Um, and it could be that she's making this claim on the basis of direction to sweep. Well, and, and also that people like Gutenberger are explicitly talking about rounding up these, this contingent of people, the defeatists, the deserters, yeah, the less enthusiastic. Yeah. If um, you, yeah, the whole thing, like if you're not his, 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 when he backs down off of the ledge, if you're not going to shoot them, then at least arrest them or the, you use violence and arrest or something mm -hmm. necessary force. Right. But I'm, I'm not clear on how much that actually happened. Yeah. I was curious about the numbers. The, there's an article about the Rattingen Gestapo that talks about their, has, has discussion of their prison register and how many Germans versus other groups were kept there. And I think that might be good as a basis to kind of extrapolate and approximate from what we might be seeing in the AELs during the same period. But uh -huh. that is the only one where I have seen some type of discussion of what your distribution of foreign foreigners, primarily Soviets, is sort of the drumbeat to Germans is at this time. What was the distribution like there? I would have to look again. Uh, mm -hmm. he, he's quite exact on it. It's Uwe Kaminsky. Um, and it gives this amazing description about how the rat after the... Prince Georgstrasse Gestapo headquarters in Dusseldorf got hit by a bomb. They were working in uh, the offices and school gymnasium in Rattingen and like had to shut down the office at night for the musical displays. <laughs> it's like, what? you know, just, you know, a little insight into what it was like to try and operate at the end of the war, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that you can see that, all over the country or particularly any place that has sustained severe bombing that any kind of building that's still left standing can be repurposed to hold prisoners or, you know, officials or anything, gonna... dude, there are records in Gutenberger's files that I typed up because they're hilarious, dude. It's, it's an, it's, I don't know. It's like a 20 page exchange about where to keep the chickens and the goats at Gutenberger's <laughs> headquarters. And they're like trying to requisition a room to keep the livestock in, dude. Uh, I don't know. That that's that's pretty funny. Uh, but you know they 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 were not just evacuating people uh, livestock, from the left yeah. bank of the Rhine. They they're also evacuating all the livestock. And I guess that's the thing I've never thought about before is what are you going to do with all these animals? Can I think it was something around. like, like 40,000 uh, head of livestock of one kind or another. Yeah. And and they've got to go somewhere. And they're not going to hesitate to escape because they're afraid of being shot. <laughs> I 
you imagine? <laughs> you know, like some some Gestapo agent with the pistol pulled, trying to coerce a goat into coming back. Halt! Stand bleiben. Reporting fifteen chickens shot while trying to escape. <laughs> Um, uh, we shouldn't laugh about this kind of thing, but all right, uh, laugh or uh, well, cry, dude. Uh, laugh or cry. Yeah, sure. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit about what happens to these Germans uh, who did wind up in a prison or an AEL, uh, either as uh, Gewitter prisoners or as half Jews or Jews in mixed marriages or as defeatists or deserters. Right. Uh, what's interesting is that many of them didn't remain in captivity up to the end of the war. Uh, as things progress, more and more of them are released. And the it looks numbers like... on the swings on that were huge, too. She makes a point about that. The fluctuation at the the example that she takes in the Cologne Mesa is between... Where are we here? I, I wrote that one down with a lot of stars. Yeah, I remember this. There was like 10,000 people passed through the the camp at the Mesa, uh, like a hundred people a day were coming in and going out. Hundreds at a time. Uh, sorry, sorry, I interrupted you and I thought I had it at my fingertips and now I can't. Oh, sorry. You you keep you keep looking. Yeah. And I uh, I want to make a a quick side note about this this camp that the Mesa camp in Cologne. Uh, it's it's an interesting location itself, and and its development is pretty fascinating that it had been a uh, sub-camp of uh, Buchenwald, I believe. And originally, there was an SS construction battalion that was stationed there. So uh, concentration camp prisoners who did construction work, mostly uh, clearing the rubble uh, from the bombing. Uh, that's why this camp had been established uh, much earlier than most of the other sub-camps as the concentration camp system expanded. Uh, and this was the camp where uh, Steinbruch had been held. Uh, and when this construction battalion started defusing bombs, uh, he, he was involved in that. But from its origins as a subcamp, it would also become a work education camp. So you'd have these two populations side by side, the concentration camp prisoners and the work education camp prisoners. Now, that's how Steinbruch met Mishka Finn. Mishka Finn had been a work education camp prisoner while Steinbruch was a concentration camp prisoner. So this is from two episodes back when we were discussing the uprising in Cologne and the Ehrenfeld hangings after the attacks. Steinbruch and Mischke are the the link that the Gestapo forged between what they believe was a German uprising supported by by communist foreign workers. Um, and they they met at this this AEL. Um, yeah, I, the numbers there on that are are crazy. It is. It change it fluctuates by eight hundred detainees, man, five hundred to thirteen hundred, with hundreds yeah. arriving in a day. So yeah, and just what the place is is fluctuating as well. It, it's mm -hmm. it's not clear exactly what it's supposed to be. At first, it's it's this concentration camp sub camp. Then it is a dual purpose camp for concentration camp prisoners and work education camp prisoners. And then in I think it's the early summer of nineteen forty four this construction battalion moves off and thereafter it's just a work education camp. And the, when the SS guards leave, 
they take the administration with them. So the Cologne Gestapo has to take over the administration of this camp as well as it becomes a work education camp. Well, see what I was what I was kind of getting from Lafi, and I just realized that I've been mispronouncing her name all the way from the introduction of this entire podcast. Uh, is that there, there's really like you say the purpose of the places is changing, but it's not just that the purpose is changing. There's multiple things happening there, right? And you've got on the one hand you're still using it for labor discipline. Some of those lines mm-hmm. begin to be blurred with discipline of the civil population, but they're still kept in fundamentally different, uh, not kept in fundamentally different places, but they have fundamentally different Germans and non-Germans have fundamentally different experiences in the same camp. And uh, like when you're looking at sort of like the fact that Steinbrook is hauled in and the Hitler youth, the the kind of or well delinquent Hitler youth, uh, the the Edelweiss pirates and kind of youth gangs are kept there, and people who are I I some of the people who are being uh stopped at the evacuation the the line that separates the red zone from the green zone uh, on the on the western bank of the rhine they're they're being sent to work education camps as well so it, it really feels like you're almost seeing a sort of a pro the, that these are becoming processing and staging areas in their own right for the evacuations and for labor in a way yeah they're, they're becoming kind of transfer camps yes yeah uh, the question is to what percent what percentage of people are being sent on to concentration camps, what percentage of people are being released, and what percentage are being sent back to labor camps. And like and, and then how does that change among Germans versus non-Germans? Mm-hmm. Uh, and just given the the large numbers that we're dealing with here, I think we can probably assume that the majority are released. Or I mean if they're if they're foreigners sent back to, to work in confinement. I mean, if if you have ten thousand people going through the the Mesa camp, you know the, the, the you don't have ten thousand people system. being sent to concentration camps in the Rhineland. Like you don't have that many. Ca- that you, have, you could barely well, process probably, that intake in that period in all of Germany. Do. I mean, the the concentration camp uh, population between August of forty four and uh, January of forty five doubled. So I added something like four hundred thousand people. Uh, but they didn't all come from this one camp in Cologne. Uh, so I, I think hmm. just given the numbers, it's reasonable to expect that, that many, probably a majority were released again. In concentration camps or in the camp system in total, including AELs? Well, they weren't being released from concentration camps, but were being released from the police prisons and from the AELs. So we're including. The, I'm talking about either four hundred thousand people. Yeah, the the, the January population is seven hundred and fifty thousand for the concentration camp. The January nineteen forty five population is seven hundred fifty thousand, and the August forty four population is somewhere in the neighborhood of three hundred four hundred thousand. Wow. Yeah. And like, do we know what's included in that number? That's not just cousins. It is. That is just what's it. That's just the concentration camps. Yes. Yeah. It it is 
expanding at a phenomenal rate. That is staggering. Uh, and uh, earlier in the year, uh, in the, the spring and early summer of 1944, Speer, the uh, guy that's controlling the, the economy, um, and other prominent people like Flieger, who was uh, the commissar for, for coal, so for mining, uh, had been complaining that uh, losing 30,000 to 40,000 people every month to the concentration camps, that for any small infraction, people are being you know, scooped up and sent off to the concentration camps uh, because Himmler's trying to build his own personal workforce. Mm -hmm. uh, and this was a shift in early 1944 from previous practice, which had been to send delinquent uh, workers to the work education camps instead. That's crazy. So, so it could be that all of the people who are being processed through the MESA are being sent to concentration camps and not released? I'd be surprised. I guess it's possible. Uh, although, I mean, I just I keep coming back examples to examples of Germans report. being being released. Oh, tell me about that. Um, well, this this is this Cologne report from the end of November, where they begin to process all of the people that they've arrested over the course of the fall crisis. In November, there's a couple hundred people that are being held in a prison, and then the Gestapo shows up and begins to process them and is sending reports back saying most of the people here can be released in short order. Mm -hmm. So once the situation calms down again and this kind of panic and terror recedes again, then they are they begin to release people again and they begin to go back to their old practices. But it's, I mean, if, I if that's an actual prison, right, and not one of these camps... I would be really surprised if you were just processing people through the camp at such a rate. And then I know there's also a report that I don't have from the Cologne Gestapo that uh, lists the number of people and nationality that are being transferred to concentration camps. Mm -hmm. And oh, I, we, I think we need those two documents. But uh -huh. yeah, the number of Germans detained in Rattingen increased eightfold. The number of new admissions rocketed from the 1943 mean of 27 per month to remain at over 100 new detainees per month from June 1944 to February 1945. The percentage of prisoners detained by order of the Gestapo, meanwhile, increased from 48% to 79%. The overall percentage of Germans compared to foreigners increased from 23% in 1943 to 43% for all of 1944. The prison diary, meanwhile, ceased to provide grounds for arrest in the majority of cases beyond Schutzhaft. Seemingly underlining the Cologne's Gestapo concerns about delays between arrest and due process, the Cologne political opposition desk moved to Rheinbach Penitentiary to address the backlog of cases in earnest. Officers interrogated all the prisoners a second time about the time, place, and reason for their arrest. As case files are not available and it is otherwise impossible to develop a clear picture of events, Attachment then forwarded these interrogations back to the responsible desk as well as the task groups along with requests for an opinion statement. Detachment had already processed and released 68 of a total of 231 prisoners in Rhinebach this way during their first week at the penitentiary. The detachment leader, either the head or deputy head of the political opposition desk, concluded that so far as things look, a majority of prisoners can be released in short order as soon as the requested opinion statements arrive. Mm -hmm. So did I understand this right, that they're interrogating 
prisoners a second time because they've lost their records? Or are you saying that or no record ever records? was created? There's another mm-hmm. thing up here. I have another report that says so early early reports on shortcomings and suggestions for the resolution complained of week long gaps between arrests and the first time officers worked a file. Special arrangements were made for candles and even an in house barber to close the gaps. Huh. And uh, this would all be happening within the context of these new German prisoners coming in, so the Gewitter prisoners, those the people that are captured during evacuations. Uh, uh, oh, yeah? yeah? When does this start? Well, the Ratzing and Booking Register says... was crazy. The Ratzing in one begins in June 1944. Over mm-hmm. 100 a month. That's when huh. it, it jumps. So it's also before the 20th of July assassination attempt. Huh. Well, what do you suppose the cause of this was? Is it the Allied landings in the West? In part, um, you know, it, it's not, I don't have the register, right? So, sure. All right. Well, let's explore this, uh, this whole question of release a little bit further then, now that we've kind of established as best we can the, the scale of new Germans coming into captivity of one kind or another. Yeah. So, it seems like there were a few waves of releases that the uh, action Gewitter apparently faced yeah a pushback popular rejection protest uh, and, was used uh-huh. by Lotfi as a descriptor yeah uh, I wish we'd heard a little bit more about that because I wonder what the mechanics of this protest were. But uh, apparently because of this, most of the Gewitter prisoners, well, first of all, Action Gewitter stopped. Mm. uh, And most of the people that were uh, captured during Action Gewitter were let go. Mm. Uh, She does say that all of the most prominent people that were taken during Action Gewitter, uh, the leaders or people who had been members of the Reichstag or Landtag, were sent to the concentration camps. So so they were not released. But uh, as I understand it, most of the rest were. So that would be people who had previously been arrested for like uh, preparation for high treason um, mm-hmm. or, or some, some kind of, had, had some kind of stay in a camp before or were let go. Uh, and then later on, when it becomes clear that the allies are going to take these places sooner or later, going to take, take the camps where German prisoners are held and, and where foreign prisoners are held, they're faced with a decision about what to do. Uh, and they, Himmler lays out kind of the trifecta of options that you can release the prisoners, you can evacuate them, or you can execute them. Uh, and it was really only the Germans who are eligible for release that if you're, or, or foreigners from allied, allied countries. Um, if you're a foreigner from an enemy state, or if you're a German who is classified as a Jew or a half Jew uh, or a Roma, Sinti, um, also asocials 
people that are seen as as dangerous, they're not eligible for release. They're going to be, either be evacuated or executed. Uh, but faced with this problem of what to do with all these people, if you can't just leave them there, because of course they're not going to just let the allies take this dangerous population, uh, they choose to release many of the German prisoners. Well, I think it's interesting. Sorry, go ahead. Well, uh, it looks like this big push to release many doesn't happen until early 1945 when the Allies are coming. That that earlier on, I mean, you, you have releases of small batches, uh, I, as I understand it, uh, on the basis of, of their own situation, like what you were just talking about. Uh, but as the Allies approach, there's a, a crisis mentality. Something has to happen right now. And all the Germans who are not seen as dangerous are released. Mm-hmm. Which is what, like, the Latvi puts up the, not only does she discuss the development of the regulations for regional decisions about executions, which is interesting. And I like the fact that after Dr. Albath became the failsaber of the security police for the region, they referred to his, his little, uh, his outpost outpost is the Little Reich security head office. Yeah, that's right. Like that was quite interesting. But that she she brings up the regulations that survived from the Justice Ministry about what to do for people uh-huh. who had already been convicted of an offense. Right? So this this would cover everything from again, people who've been convicted of conspiracy to commit high treason or preparation to commit high treason and uh down to sort of defeatists and other opinion offenses and in that it's like the list was uh what was our list again it's like again the, targeted minorities like you talked uh-huh. about where you've got jehovah's witnesses uh jews half jews uh communist party members who or it doesn't say communist party members it says politically dangerous Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or what was it like, Staatsgefährliche? Um, so which in in Gestapo well, it's, speak, it's important me, that they that they don't say communist though, because that does leave room for interpretation for individual Gestapo yes. officers to decide whether they're dangerous or not. Although, given their past and their experience, they're probably going to interpret communists to be dangerous elements. Yes, uh, but but it doesn't come out and say it. True. Asocials, psychopaths, and staatspolitisch gefährliche, um, along with habitual criminals. So mm-hmm. you, you're hitting your kind of like the, the so-called social pests, the Volksschädlinge, the Jews that are remain, the half Jews that remain within Germany. And then all, all for all, all, um, foreign workers of enemy nations. Mm-hmm. that have been convicted of something and are in jail. And then, yeah, politically dangerous persons. So, yeah. And, and this list is developed within the context of a agreement between Himmler and Thierach, the justice minister, uh, in which they agree that justice ministry prisoners can be executed. Now, this yeah. list of that, that we've just gone through isn't who should be executed. It's who should not be released. 
but for, for people that fit into one of these categories, the only options left are evacuation or execution. True. And we should point out, so like when the allies approach, the the attorney general for the region is supposed to review review the case and decide on release, evacuation, or execution. And then the We're, groups right. that we but listed they, before but they can't choose are release exempted for these groups. from release. Exactly. Yes. yes. Yeah. Uh, so the only options left for them are evacuation or execution. Right. And Thirak has the the justice minister has agreed that execution is a viable option here. Yes. Oh, the and other there's thing one thought- more uh, one more group that uh, the Latfi also mentions as being included in this exemption from release. And that is uh, prisoners earmarked by the Gestapo. So they could yes. also. Anyone who had been selected. Special cases. Yes. yes. But I, I think that was also people who were going to be moved to a concentration camp. So that is where you're, you're looking at like your conspiracy to commit high treason cases that the Gestapo mm-hmm. are going to correct or pick up and move to a, a concentration camp after release. Right? Ah. Like that, that is, I think, almost an explicit reference to that. Okay. Okay, that's interesting. So some of these released prisoners will still wind up in concentration camps. Oh, yeah. Like from 1937 mm-hmm. onward, the Gestapo reserves the right to establishes its sovereignty over that of the highest court in the land and the right to use, send people, correct any sentence by a court, quote unquote, uh, <laughs> in the name of prevention. Because, see... I, I love their workaround, right? Like it's so diabolically genius. You've got the courts deal with punishment, but the Gestapo deals with prevention. And although this person may have been punished or could not have been punished due to a lack of evidence in the name of prevention, Gestapo measures still apply. <laughs> and from 1937 onward, they can just pick up anybody that they, anybody that they want to, but in practice restrict this to, cases cases of conspiracy to commit high treason for the most part uh-huh. and a socials uh, like violent criminals and things like that but okay but then the language that they'd used in the past when they say release doesn't necessarily mean send that person home uh no that the it, word that, that they use really is release from the it's not uh, release it's like mm-hmm. a, a return transfer is what they call a, call it when they want to send somebody to a concentration camp. Okay. So they file they file a, a demand for a return transfer of a prisoner. Uh-huh. But um, yeah, I, I the other the other while we're talking about releases and executions and who is being released and who is being executed here, I thought it was quite interesting the Dortmund Gestapo was the one with the highest ratio of Germans to non-Germans executed, but Mm -hmm. it was also explicitly identified that the Germans being executed by the Dortmund Gestapo were members of organized resistance groups and political prisoners, which is to say either members of the KPD, Action Mm -hmm. Gewitter, or members in actual resistance groups. So... Again, unless you're actively involved in resistance or you're a member of a targeted political minority, you are being released from this. You might get swept up in it in a mass arrest, but it looks like there's one wave. So situation calms down in November and then they're like, okay, well, what are we going to do with all these people? And you get a bunch of releases. And Mm -hmm. then 
Again. Although you know you shouldn't you shouldn't assume that because those who were the Germans who were executed were mostly associated with real or perceived resistance in one way or another, that those who were not involved in resistance or the Communist Party or whatnot were necessarily released. They may have just not been selected for execution. Uh, they may have gone through continuous evacuation from one camp to another. But the point, uh, true, but it said that at Dortmund, it was, they processed the final people. Sure. Yeah. Dortmund is kind of the end of the line. For this the, is like, the this is when they're doing the final selections. Like there, there's another Gerhard Paul, I believe, who we will cover in another episode. It talks about this and it's, um, it's, I believe it's the leader of like Bochum and Dortmund and another. So the, the big number is because I think it's like three Gestapo stations. Vemelskirchen might be in there too, are meeting and discussing what to do with their prisoners. And they bring their dossiers and they go over the cases and they're like, you know, <laughs> you know, kill, 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 release, kill. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, one, one last note on releases. In the last months and weeks of the war, it seems like releases have more of a staccato nature to them, that it's when a camp is being evacuated that decisions are made for everybody all everybody that's left all at once, mm -hmm. and everybody's put into to one of these three categories. Uh, so you have each time a, a camp is evacuated, a new batch of Germans that are let go to go back home and then the remaining population is either killed on site or moved to the next camp until that one becomes threatened and then another batch is either let go or executed or moved on to the next camp uh, until until they reach the end of the line of Dortmund. Hmm. Yeah. And like the same thing with like the the final march out of the Cologne prison. So Lotfi does an amazing job of describing the actual processing and selection process for execution uh in cologne out of the the mesa so she talks about at the beginning or at the beginning of the end of october the beginning of the end the end of the beginning uh each each desk each referat draws up a list of prisoners that they are currently holding that should be considered for execution and then by wednesday the cho people who appear on those lists are moved to the Klingelputz prison in the Gestapo wing there where they're held. And they're moved in from all across the region, including the, the Mesa uh, AEL yeah. from the, the camps, the jails, everything across the area. And then the list, uh, the collected list is presented Wednesday morning uh, or sorry, by Wednesday evening to the head of station who then begins to review it and deliberates until Thursday evening for a Friday execution at which point people are taken by foot from the 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 Klingelputz prison to the basement in the ELDL house in Cologne where they're shot, then the bodies are loaded onto trucks and they're moved to the Cologne Western Cemetery. And that this happens from more or less the end of October until the first of March nineteen forty five. Mm-hmm. Cologne's and early. Cologne's about two months early or two to four months earlier than everyone else in the region. But that's also because in October they're dealing with, um, you know, everything that we talked about with the episode on Rusenic, right? So, yeah, yeah, that's that's 
kind of what precipitates this. But you're still uh, I, something I mean, else like, that's last point there though, mm-hmm. and I mean it's the number is low. It's four hundred people or something like that that they execute. That's estimated that the Cologne Gestapo goes through. The Dortmund Gestapo no, goes through two hundred and eighty-seven. Well, it's low considering the the fact that you have seven hundred thousand people in camps. Mm-hmm. It's monstrous, but it's lower than I would expect considering the stories of kind of charnel houses at the end of the war, right? Uh-huh. Uh huh. Something else that I think is is interesting about that moment when uh, you have this selection and people sent out to Klingelputz is that it also shows that, that a a distinction still did remain in the, the Mesa camp uh, between the different captive populations. It, it seems like the, the borders are very hazy. There's been a mixing of first concentration camp prisoners, then the work education camp prisoners, and then just the general uh, police prisoners, uh, political prisoners. But uh, when they start making these decisions, they send all of the people who were in the Mesa camp for Arbeitsbammelanten, so for, for shirking or for contract breaking, to another Arbeit, another uh, work education camp, uh, Mungersdorf. They aren't considered for these execution, executions at the Gestapo wing of the Klingelputz. Uh, so there's still a recognition that there's differences between the captive populations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. German Germans are still Germans and non-Germans are still non-Germans. Well, yeah, clearly. Um, but there's a, a, a recognition that there's a difference between political offenders, which can be Germans or non-Germans uh, mm-hmm. and uh, economic offenders, those that need some kind of re-education. Mm-hmm. So the there's still at least a gesture towards the educational character of of the work education camps. I'm curious about where people who make defeatist statements fall on this spectrum, right? Certainly, vis vis a vis people who refuse evacuations, and what if you make mm-hmm. your defeatist statement during an evacuation, right? Like, uh huh. Well, I mean, I haven't actually seen on paper anything that says that a person that refused evacuation was put into a camp. Have you seen that? I have not. I've seen huge numbers of people who were turned back. Mm-hmm. And I've seen I mean, people I, who I think were it's a reasonable assumption. Mm. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I I wouldn't surprise me. Because a lot of them I are already know being dragged into evidence. labor battalions, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. To, uh, so there's other forms of social coercion here that mm-hmm. we're not looking at. The AEL is a step above what the party is empowered to do. And the party is empowered to do way more mm-hmm. during this period. Once mm-hmm. again, it comes back that we don't know enough about what the party's doing. Yeah. And, well, Latvi briefly addresses the role of the party. She she seems to suggest that uh, the the party helps to radicalize the Gestapo, but she doesn't go much a far, prime that. example of that. But 
And, and the party Good. also writes up the lists of politically unreliable prisoners, right? Uh-huh. Or politically unreliable individuals with which nothing tell, tell was ever done. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. She mentions that. That uh, that was a, a Borman initiative, and then nothing comes of it. Uh, but tell me, what do you mean by uh, Gutenberger being a an example of uh, the party driving radicalization? Gutenberger is not actively involved in the day-to-day work of the policing. He's he's like an appendix. He's like uh, he's an unnecessary extra organ of policing. The HSSPF, the higher SS and police leaders in combat zones are actively involved mm-hmm. in lia- they're like the liaison authority that coordinates the activities of all the police forces in the area as Himmler's direct representative on the home front where the police are directly responsible to the Reich security main office after 1939 and the Gestapo are responsible to the uh, security police and, and Reinhard Heydrich, who is Himmler's deputy uh, up until 1939, from 1936 to 1939. The higher SS and police leaders are sort of, from what I can tell from Gutenberger's records, not doing much. Uh, the the inspectors of security police are the ones who are in charge of promotion and recruitment and education and selection uh, for for all of that, and then the higher SS and police leader is just there. Like there's very little in Gutenberger's records prior to the fall of 1944 when all of a sudden he's activated, right? Because the West becomes a combat zone. Because the West becomes a combat zone, but he's he's a he's a political man. He's not a pol- he's not involved in the re- he's not a practitioner so far as policing goes, right? Like he's he is a party man. He is a party representative and he's Himmler's personal representative, mm-hmm. but he's not a pol- he's not police. I'm still not comfortable saying that that he is party influence though because you know, he's he's an SS man first okay. and foremost. I I suppose my point is that he's ideological rather than police right like he doesn't sure, okay. have practical experience in policing in in, in even the kind of security duties i was like gutenberger got the job as higher ss and police leader in 41 is that right i believe so yeah. what you know what he was doing before that i think that he he might come from essen or duisburg police administration okay so so he's not one of these guys that had experience in the occupied territories. I don't think so. Like he was an early national socialist, a uh, member of the SA from 1925, 1932, joined the NSDAP. He was a member of the Prussian Landtag from 1932. And then in 1938, he was uh, appointed to be the police pre- president of Duisburg. And mm-hmm. then in November 1939, police president of Essen, 1940, he joined the SS. And in 1941, he was appointed uh, SS and police police leader of West. So he's given a political administrative huh. kind of appointment, right? And then fast-tracked into this, admi- this yeah. oversight role. That's, that's fascinating that he'd only been in the SS for a year before he got the job. Yeah. Well... Speaking of experience in the East, that's something else that Latfi uh, is very concerned with. And she seems to suggest that 
the Eastern experience very much influenced what happened in the West in the last months of the war. Um, she, she points out that the personnel who wind up as the, wind up in the important positions, I guess, not, not Gutenberger, um, but the uh, inspectors of the uh, security police and the, uh, the KDS, um, the kind of what do you call that? The commanders of the security police uh, had had served in the East in Einsatzgruppen in these yeah. mobile execution squads, and they cut their teeth there. That's where they learned how how to organize executions. Then, at the end of the war, they're put in these prominent positions, and they use the same methods that they had learned in the East in the West. That's only in February. Yeah, yeah. That, Which that's is when interesting. You, you get people shot into into bomb craters, um, and the the use of the genixius, the the yeah. shot in the back of the neck, uh, an an effective method of execution that had been developed in the east this is to prevent blood spatter on your clothes from the brain cap exploding or the skull cap exploding mm -hmm. yeah yeah something to i mean protect the executioner psychologically yeah i lofty has an or lofty has an amazing list of executions the best table of executions and nationalities at the end of her thing here yeah it's it's very comprehensive. It is it is literally every single one of them mm -hmm. that is known. But uh, yeah, table seven: mass executions of the security police in the Rhineland-Westphalian uh, defense district during the end phase of the war. And the thing that keeps popping up is nationality: Soviet Union, Soviet Union, Soviet mm -hmm. Union. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then when you look at the ones that say German, right, it's like one man, one police mm -hmm. officer, um, two, two men, right? And then, and then you have sort of larger mixed executions like the 200-some by the Dortmund Gestapo from and, – and I mean this is over a series of months, but – yeah, 287, 287. Yeah, the uh, yeah nationalities is very interesting. Um, I think that the mixed executions are particularly interesting uh, because you know if if Soviet citizens are shot next to Germans, then I think that says something about how the executioners saw those Germans. Uh, but we also have to keep in mind that, that some of these numbers, like that 287 at Dortmund, were several executions lumped together. And we see it as, as one total because of the sources that, uh, right. like this one, came from a post-war trial where they, it's probably 10 executions. Uh, well, but it's but not I, clear who was I shot I don't when. think there's much mystery behind that, though, when you're looking at the fact that the people are being executed or being accused of resistance like or actual organized collusion against the regime and that a lot of them are are communists or former communists mm -hmm. so it makes perfect sense to execute former communists 
alongside or as part of a larger batch of Soviets because Soviet citizens are automatically considered to be communists. Yeah. The, so. Yeah, no, and, and that, that makes a lot of sense, but we shouldn't assume that that's what's happening in, in some of these mixed executions because they are made up. We're getting one total for several executions. Uh, so we don't know that the Soviet citizens were standing next to the German citizens at the edge of a bomb crater as they got no. the Ganik shoes. Yeah, no, yeah. I, 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 I take your point there. I just mean that there's a definite continuation. There's a definite continuity in who the Gestapo is choosing to execute. Mm -hmm. And it is consistently communists or people perceived to be communists with, you know, a few other people engaged in resistance or looting thrown in on the side. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the Germans are not generally regular people that said, Oh, ho. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that is the exception rather than the rule. Uh -huh. I believe uh, is what, is what the evidence bears out, which I think is important. And you made a really good point earlier about the, as you called it, the staccato nature of the releases, like how they, how they occur either in the final moment or in a couple waves before you enter this final final phase from kind of January, February onward when the terror begins to ratchet up against the population at large. Yeah, they, they, they happen out of necessity, not necessarily uh, because the Gestapo wants to let the Germans go. Uh, it happens earlier on because they don't have room for everybody and later on because they can't stay there. I don't know, man. I, I think that there's I, there's an element of you need to maintain control in this situation. The whole MO of the Gestapo, so far as Germans are concerned, is maintain discipline, maintain social control, mm -hmm. and yep, then order. reintegrate, right? And, and that the whole, all of the warnings that they issue for criticism and politicized speech and everything like that to the population, which is, you know, well-established and continues up to this point and appears from the documents as though what the party takes over is its responsibility. They're going into a prison with 287 people who were arrested as part of the evacuation and considered important enough to be sent to an actual prison for further interrogation mm -hmm. rather than uh, uh, an expanded police uh, like camp, right? Like you have in the, in the Mesa in North Cologne. And still they're going through and they're getting the opinion statements of the the actual commandos. These are the people that in this situation in November, they're going out of their way to get the extra information, to get an opinion statement like a Stellungnahme from mm -hmm. the commando that arrested them on what to do with this person. And they're still releasing 68 of them within a week with the report stating that we expect to be able to release the rest of them later. Mm -hmm. And then when, yeah, you, and I when think you lay that evidence out alongside who is being executed, I like I, I think that that's the point. Like that's sort of the punctuation of the fall crisis. That is that's kind exactly of that. where I was going to go with this. That we that this is would be a great way to explore uh, the contours and the borders of the fall crisis. That there's something different between the releases of Germans after further investigation. Yes, and the releases of Germans because the Allies are almost here, and we've got to move everybody out. Yeah, uh, that a uh, a push to 
release Germans that don't need to be held indicates that the Gestapo wasn't expecting the war to end immediately uh, and that, that there wasn't a crisis climate, uh, whereas right. the later releases happened because of crisis. Yeah, and, so, and in those final ones, that's where you're seeing like, this is a communist. He cannot be allowed to survive into the post-war world mm-hmm. and, and undermine Germany in the future. Deal with this one. You like, ooh, right? Like you undermined us, but <laughs> you know, that's not enough, right? Yeah. Yes. So we may in the future want to look into this a little bit more mm-hmm. and uh, particularly see how many releases of Germans take place in late November, December, and January of the winter of 1944 to 1945. I'd expect that we're going to see a lot there because the immediate crisis has passed. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Allies have been stopped. The Ardenne Offensive, uh, Battle of the Bulge, uh, fails, but uh, give gives some hope during December uh, that that we might be able to, to see the end of the fall crisis by mm. looking at these releases. Yeah, I, I think absolutely. That's a great way to, to divide it. The, the question that is left unanswered for me by Lotfi that I want mm-hmm. to know is where are the people coming in to the camp coming from in relation to the evacuations? And uh-huh. two, what is happening when they're transitioning out of there? Because it is a massive turnover. Where are they going? Good question. Because uh, we have to assume that many of them live nearby where they're when where they are imprisoned at, but a lot of them must not. Right. Um, of course, there's all kinds of displaced people at this point. So, you know, they may wind up you know, hooking up with with a trek or something like that, moving out, moving away from the front. Uh, but I don't know. I'm not I'm not sure if. We can know. I'm not sure if there's sources out there, but it's a good question. Right. I'm just curious if it's a case of, of the Germans who were there, you're looking at people who ran their mouth off during an evacuation, you know, are transited to this camp on the eastern bank of the Rhine and then considered evacuated and taught a lesson Mm -hmm. and sent off, right? Because that was the, okay, last thing that I wanted to talk about. I found it remarkable how the Gestapo started to use the AEL as a substitute short-term punishment. That was the other thing that interested me about and, and what is part of like my inclination to understand people who were in these camps were either being transited to a safer area and then released or receiving a short-term punishment and then released. Because there's talking about people who were uh, essentially, you know, they were sent to an AEL rather than a concentration camp, right? Mm-hmm. For illicit relations with non-Germans or uh, fraternizing with the enemy, as they call it. But like this idea that, and and that you started to have defeatists appear there. Well, defeatists are supposed to go before a Sondergericht and receive like two and a half years in a penitentiary or the death sentence. So if that is too much or you can't you know you're having a breakdown of larger judicial system but you need to punish this person and then maybe get them back working on a road or a fortification again an ael is a good alternative right 
Which, like, right. And remember, that was kind of the whole point of, of the work education camps in the first place, is that you can punish and discipline someone and then put them back to work. Right. Uh, but I think I might hear the subtext of what you're saying. Uh, are you saying that in the NFASA, the AELs are the new released with a warning? Yes. <laughs> That is okay. kind of what I, I and like <laughs> I don't have enough, but I don't have enough evidence to say that yet. Yeah. Right, from what this is, and that's why I'm so interested about what's happening, to the, where these people are coming from, and what's happening to them after they're gone. Because I know that once you're in a prison, you're considered important enough to interrogate. And I don't. I think that an AEL is like once they've figured out that you just need a slap on the wrist or that you don't, which at this point could result in you dying of malnutrition after eight weeks of hard labor, but is not being sent to a concentration camp and is not being selected for execution, which are two very real alternatives at this time. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, There are interrogations at the work education camps. Read some oral histories of guys. Well, these are foreigners. It may have been different for Germans, uh, but talking about how you know their day to day life in in the work education camp was, you know, when you go to bed at night, you everybody throws the clothes in a pile and you climb into bed naked with with two other guys, and then you get up in the morning and grab a random set of clothes off the the pile and you're marched out barefoot over the gravel to your interrogation, and then right. they beat you in your interrogation, uh, ask you if you're a partisan and and then you go to work and then you go back home and uh, they spray you down with the hose. You take off your clothes again and the cycle repeats. Uh, so there are, there are interrogations going on at least earlier in the work education camps. So I don't know that putting a German there necessarily means we don't think there's anything more to be learned from this person or that they might've been involved in something or that they weren't involved in something more. Uh, well, the ratting and prisoners, according to Kaminsky, are the people who are being kept there because they're part of an ongoing important investigation, mm-hmm. right? Like they need them available for multiple interrogations. Yeah. And that makes sense that you yeah. want to hold somebody that you're going to be interrogating a lot close to the people that are doing the interrogation. But that's not the case at Reichenbach. Or Reichenbach that's from Sherlock Holmes. Um, <laughs> uh, no, Reinbach, not Reichenbach. Reinbach mm-hmm. prison. That's the Cologne, That's where the Cologne Gestapo shows up and it starts interviewing people and then releases, you know, 67 of them or 63 of them in short order. Mass releases. Mass arrests, mass releases, man. That's the story of the fall crisis. Yeah. And that's why we need to, we need to look more into releases later mm-hmm. on, or changes yeah. in patterns. Yeah. Yeah. This, um, this is a good book. Good book. It's a really um, good book. The, the, <laughs> well, well researched, and I guess the fact that the it is not argument heavy makes it hard to be critical um, because the, the research is so solid. Yeah. And on that note of agreement, that concludes this installment of the Third Reich History Podcast. We hope to see you next time when we will be reviewing Ralph Blank's article on the end phase in the Rhine and Ruhr area, which is just north of the Cologne region that we've been looking at the past couple weeks. Hope to see you then, and thank you for joining us. Bye-bye.